If you will take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Acts. We are in chapter 6 today. Todd's just gotten back from G3, uh, which is, from my experience, was a fantastic conference. And from the quotes he had and, uh, on, on Facebook and Twitter, I'm, I'm sure he felt the same way again this year. So I'm sure he's uh, fired up to preach this, this morning. Uh, so we'll, we'll go ahead and jump in and try to get done so he has plenty of time this morning to, to preach. We are going to cover the entire chapter today. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 7, though. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good, good repute, full of, the, excuse me, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So, we are working through... Acts, obviously, and, and we are working through the church's continued growth, the church's explosion, really, as we've seen here in the early part of the book of Acts. And as we continue to work through the early church and how it began to grow and what, uh, what took place in the early church, we begin to see things rise up in the church and outside of the church to give the church problems or, or issues. That is what we have really in this entire chapter. We actually have in this chapter problems inside and outside the, the church. New problems that have arisen inside and outside of the church. So here we begin in verse 1 and we see now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. This kind of really sets the tone for these, these verses, these first seven verses. In these days, when most of the preaching and teaching was coming from the apostles and the gospel was exploding in Jerusalem, the church was growing. Now, now it is possible, and even more likely, based on the timeline here in Acts that's laid out, from this point forward, that this is maybe upwards to five years after Pentecost. So there may be a, 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 some significant time that has come between the end of chapter 5 and chapter 6. But we've seen here in this leading up to chapter 6 that the, the church has been growing exponentially already. And then we continue to see that here at the beginning of verse 6. Now, we have seen problems arise in the church already, right? Or with the church already. Let me, let me phrase it that way. We saw a small problem within the church there back in chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira, they attempted to, to cheat the Holy Spirit by lying about the sale of the price of their property. But most of the problems that we've seen, most of the major problems that we've seen, have come from outside the church so far, right? Specifically, they've come from the leadership in Israel. But both of those problems will be expanded on in this chapter, meaning both problems within the church, that small little problem that was addressed initially with Sapphira and Ananias and Sapphira, and then 
the, the problems there with the leadership of Israel, that will expand as well that we will begin to see at the end of chapter 6. The first problem that we see here though in chapter 6 is a problem from within. The church has grown a great deal over these few years, and as is usually the case, they're still filled with fallen humans, right? The church still has fallen humans. They're, they're still imperfect. And so problems have found their way into the church as well as they've continued to grow. And let me say this before we really dig in. This should kind of give us a little bit of, of hope and peace, right? As we see this here in the early church. Not that we rejoice in the problems of others at all, but if the early church with the leadership of the apostles had issues and had problems and had concerns, then we can expect them too, right? We can expect things with, as a, a fallen group of human beings to have some issues arise, to have disagreements arise, have things that pop up in our, our body. The key is, is how we handle that, right? How we approach those things. And that's what we see here. We give a, get a biblical example here of how to handle some problem that, address, that rises up within the church. What was this trouble, though? Well, we are told there at the beginning of verse 1. We're told that the Hellenists were grumbling against the Hebrews because they believed that the Hellenist widows were being overlooked by and in the daily distribution of food. So let me take a minute to kind of just address what's going on here exactly. Because again, this is kind of the, the, the foundation of the rest of this, these few verses. There were probably a few Gentile believers in the church at this point, but they would have been proselytes that had converted to Judaism already. They would have been Jewish proselytes prior to converting to Christianity. But up to this point in Acts, the church was very Jewish. It still is very Jewish at this point. God had not quite opened the door to the Gentile world yet. We will see that before long, but that had not quite come yet. So the Hellenists here and the Hebrews were Jews. These are both Jews, both of these groups. The Hellenists were those Jews who were Greek-speaking Jews, probably most of which were part of the dispersion, those who had been dispersed or taken away and remained away after the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. These would have been their descendants. These Jews then would have most likely been those who had now moved back to Israel specifically here to Jerusalem, to the city of Jerusalem. The Hebrews were Aramaic-speaking and mostly native-born Palestinians. Outside of the church, we, we see that tensions between these two Hebrews, these two groups, the Hebrews and the Hellenists, they, they had been around for a while. It hadn't just popped up within the church since the first time this issue had popped up. This is why it's popping up in the church. Because issues between these two groups had been around for a long time, and now they had begun to creep into the church. Now, remember, widows in this day were generally in far worse position than widows today. Not saying that widows today, there aren't some widows that are in bad, a bad place financially or just, you know, they're having a hard time getting by. But, but here in America, as a general rule, widows aren't quite what they were in the position they were at that point there in Jerusalem and in, in the Middle East, you know, during this day. Most of the women at this point could not earn a living for themselves. They were very limited of what they could provide for themselves. They depended on their husbands or family to provide financial stability. And at the core, they had very few resources available to them to buy food even each day. So they depended on others to provide for them often. According to John Polhill, which I just found out was a former professor of uh, Brother Blake's, 
He stated this about the Hellenistic Jews. These Jews often moved back in their latter years to die in the holy city. So when men died, they left behind their wives, obviously. And so when they left behind their wives, they left them behind without their former home or former family close by to care for them. So widows that were Hellenistic were probably even in a worse position than the Hebrew uh, widows who probably had family around that could possibly provide for them. The early church, though, they had up to this point, as we've seen in Acts, they'd shown themselves very generous, right? Very generous with, generous with their resources for the benefit of those in need in the church, which would obviously include the widows. They exhibited the spirit and heart of God who constantly stated that He desired the widows for the widows and the orphans to be cared for. And I, and I want to address this for one second. I want us to really think about this as we address this passage. This is the heart of God. The care for those that need care, that cannot care for themselves properly. God states in uh, James 1.27, He instructs us, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one unstained from the, from the world. 1 Timothy 5 gives the church specific instructions as to which widows to care for and provide for and how to do that. Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 12 instructed the Jews to use some of the tithes to care for the sojourners, the fatherless, and the widows. God gives strong warning in Isaiah chapter 10 about the mistreatment of widows. He says, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spool and that they may make the fatherless their prey. And then in Psalm 146.9, we read, Yahweh watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked He brings to ruin. I could go on and on. Those are just a, a small number of verses where God addresses the, the care of widows or He addresses the mistreatment of widows. Suffice to say that the Lord has plenty to say about caring for widows and, and those who are truly in need. He takes that very seriously. And He expects people to take that very seriously as well. His people to take that very seriously. Now, back in, in Acts 4, chapter 4, verse 35 through 37, there at the end of that chapter... That's right before Peter confronts Ananias and Sapphira and they begin to try to lie to, uh, to Peter and the Holy Spirit. But we see there that when Barnabas had sold his property, he came and he laid the money at the feet of the apostles. That's what the, the end of that chapter tells us. So it seems that at that point, very early on in the church, the apostles were over the, the taking in of that money and perhaps the distribution of that money and, and how that was not only dispersed, but the taking care of you know, what, what, what that money did and how that was uh, uh, distributed to the church itself. And that makes sense very early on in the infancy of the church. It seems, though, that, this additional, that the, they began to get some additional help as the church began to grow and as, as the church began to expand. And that we see that this additional help that was provided... As an example from Barnabas and the others that were providing need for the church, it was used for the care of the widows there in the church, the daily needs, specifically the daily food of those widows. So these Hellenistic Jews had likely, uh, or excuse me, these Hebrew Jews had likely taken over that daily distribution. That's probably what had happened. They had taken over the daily distribution of the food for the widows. And, and these Hellenistic Jews, they felt like they were not getting their proper 
the widows weren't getting their proper amount. They weren't getting enough. They were being neglected to some extent. So they began to grumble about it. Now, we don't know if the widows were complaining themselves or if these were just Hellenistic believers that were complaining on their behalf or if it's both. We also can't be sure how, how much of, uh, of this distribution was being neglected for them, how legitimate this complaint was. We don't know, again, how much was being neglected. We don't know whether it was on purpose, whether these Hebrew Jews were doing this on purpose or if it was an honest oversight of some sort. We do see here that these apostles, they address this issue and, and that they offer a solution. So I don't think that this is some, something that was made up or some type of uh, issue that was just a small issue that, was, that they were being, making into a bigger issue. We also don't see where the apostles, they, uh, uh, they you know, uh, tell the, the group that's grumbling, hey, get over it, this is not really a problem. And they actually address the problem, right? So it, that, combined with the fact that it was just this one group that seems to be being neglected, it's hard for me to, to think of this as uh, a, an oversight. You know, it seems like there's some purposeful neglect here to some extent. So we must ask the question then, what was, was it right to complain or grumble? Here was this was this a right action by this group? Well, uh, grumbling and disputes are addressed by Paul in Philippians chapter four, verse fourteen. In, in that passage, Paul writes this: He says, "Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and inner, innocent children of God." So, Paul writes that right after the wonderful and challenging passage about humility, wherein Paul instructs the church there to count others more significant than themselves, and he does so by reminding them of the humility of Christ coming and dying, giving up the glory and coming and dying on the cross for us. So I think that it's, it's not right to grumble, right? We need to think of others greater than ourselves, and sometimes maybe that includes that we just have uh, a time where, where we, we are slighted to some extent, where we just accept that and we're okay with that, especially for the betterment of our brothers and sisters. But, I will say this, there is nothing wrong with bringing attention to the church about a legitimate problem. In, in fact, I would say that it should be brought to the church so that the problem can be addressed biblically. The attitude and the spirit in which that is brought is, is important, though. As we will soon see, nothing is said by the apostles about the grumbling itself. So I think that we can, we can take that it was right for them to bring attention to this issue to the apostles here in this moment, here about this issue. There seemed to be widows, women with real need, who were being shorted or neglected, and the apostles were made aware of this, and, and so they needed to address it. And let me say this before we move on. You can see here that even though there was a supernatural love permeating the early church, we have seen that as we work through the, the growth of the church and what's been going on in church, there were still some, some struggles, right? There were still some struggles with cultural and ethnic divides that we see coming up in this chapter. It's interesting to see that the first real internal issue within the church is that Scripture makes note of anyways, is not over a doctrinal issue. It's over cultural and ethnic struggles instead that have come up within the church. 
That's not to say that doctrinal issues are, are not extremely important and, and they, they aren't really to take precedent. But we can kind of understand that early on, the church was being taught doctrine by the apostles themselves, right? And, and there was really only the, just the one church there in Jerusalem and the apostles were regularly teaching there uh, and, and leading there. So doctrinal issues were probably a little less of an issue at this point. The false teachers hadn't quite crept up into uh, the church. But it does tend to show us how prevalent, natu- prevalent and natural and sometimes these sometimes man-made barriers can dominate our perceptions and our actions at times, right? I mean, we need to be careful of these things rising up, these, these preconceived ideas that we may have or barriers that we have based on maybe how we, we grew up or the way we have viewed things, the thoughts that we've had. We, we don't need to let that creep up into our, how we, we work together and how we live together and how we work as a body here in the church and how we approach others outside of the church either. So after the problem is brought to the attention of the twelve here in verse 2, we see the response of the apostles. We're told that they, they called all, of the, all the disciples or all of the church together really. This, this seems like a, a modern day business meeting in, in many ways. And I find the, the apostles' response here extremely interesting. I'm sure that there was more discussion that went on than, than what we actually get here. That, that can happen sometimes. But what we have here from Luke is obviously what he, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wanted to make note of as important for us to take and learn from. Luke really only records the ultimate solution here. And, and so we should pay attention to his response or to the response that the apostles give here. Let's see first that the apostles don't just, they don't just hand down instructions here. They don't just say, here, do this, follow this, that's it. Even though the apostles had a certain authority that no pastor or elder has today because they were actually receiving revelation and they were the foundation of the church, we do see now for the second time here in Acts that they brought the church together to make a decision of this magnitude. We saw that with the choosing of an apostle to replace Judas, and we see it here. And so I think that we see in these two things the pattern of how the church is to make most decisions. I'll touch more on that here in a second. We also see here that the apostles, again, they didn't just instruct the church that they would handle this because it was such a big deal or such a heinous act. They didn't say, or they don't say here that they will personally see to it, that this is not going to happen again. They'll make sure that one or two of the apostles are going to go there and oversee the daily distribution from here on out to ensure that the Hellenistic widows are cared for and that they're not neglected any longer. That's not their response here, right? And, and as you think about that, let me reiterate this. The care of widows and orphans is a major issue in the heart and mind of God, right? We read through plenty of, we've read through plenty of Scripture to that point. So I don't want us to take from this here that the apostles took this lightly or, or that their instructions here were flippant and that they just didn't care about what was going, what was going on there. No, instead, I think what we are to see here is the importance of the roles in the church and of the gifts that God gives us and how we are to use those gifts in those God-given roles. This has been something that so many churches and Christians have struggled with throughout the history of church, of, of, of the church. That struggle has been on both sides too. It's not just been one side or the other. Look, there are many pastors who want to control everything. There are elder boards, if you want to put it that way, that want to control everything. They're put in that position to control everything. Either it's because of some misguided biblical view where they believe that they should have the control or because they're power hungry and they just want to control. 
There are pastors, though, that, that they will not let any, I mean, and I say, when I say any, I mean any decision be made or anything be done in the church unless they give the say-so, unless they have a hand in it and they are controlling what's done. That's wrong. That's not what an elder or pastor is called to do. But then there are churches full of members who think it's the pastor's responsibility to do everything as well. Either because they also have some misguided biblical view or because they're lazy and they find it easier to pass that responsibility on to others. And and the pastor is just the easiest target since he's supposed to be leading anyways. He's supposed to be doing things anyways and he gets paid most of the time. So he should be doing it. There are pastors in some churches who quite literally do everything. They clean the church. They do outside work. They do all the tech work. They play instruments. They preach. They visit. They do all of the community outreach. The church puts everything on them. That's wrong as well. That's not the biblical model that we have. The first thing that we see here said by the apostles was, it is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. That's their response. That's their initial, or at least their initial uh, ultimate solution response. Let me put it that way. Now, I will say this, on the surface, maybe it reads differently to you, but on the surface, that might sound a little uh, flippant. Like uh, they, they, They might be viewing this as not a big deal, or that's something that's beneath them. A minor thing, maybe. But let's... I hope by this point we've gotten that out of our mind completely, right? Like that, that's, that's not at all what they are saying or how they are approaching this. According to Daryl Bach, the nuance of this term translated right here, as in it is not right, it, it is not pleasing to God. That, that's the nuance of that for them to serve tables. That it, it wouldn't please God for them to spend the daily, their daily time serving tables. Well, why would that be the case? Since God's heart is for the widows and the orphans and those who need to, to be cared for. And, and the church is placed in that position to do that, to care for their widows, to care for their orphans. Why would, why would not God not be pleased for the leaders of the church, for the apostles to do that? Well, I, I think this is pretty self-explanatory. I mean, we can think logically for a second. If the apostles were required or if they needed to go do this daily distribution and oversee it, then I, I, it would have obviously taken a great deal of their time, Right? It would have been a daily job for them, so to speak. You might ask then, well, what else were they doing during the day? I mean, why not? Well, we know that they were preaching the Word of God, as said here in, in chapter 2. That's what they, they, they say. That's their response. It's not right for us to neglect basically preaching the Word of God to go serve tables. But if you look down in verse 4, we see that they were devoting themselves to prayer as well and, and ministry of the Word. So a major focus, what we need to see here, is the importance and focus of God's Word being preached and and how the apostles were tasked to do that. That was their gift and their responsibility. Preaching to them was more than just standing up here 30 to 50 minutes once or twice a week. They were likely preaching every day at this point. But they, they also spent a lot of their time in prayer and in study so that they could properly preach and teach. The apostles believed then that that it was not right for them to sacrifice in that area to go oversee the feeding of the needy, as important as that is. 
They believe that responsibility of, to preach the Word, their responsibility to preach the Word, to prepare to preach the Word, to pray in preaching the Word, and for the church and for the, the flock, superseded the responsibility, their, their need to go and, and, uh, and to serve tables. That was not their responsibility that God had given them. That was not their role, is a way to put it. So in verse 3, they give instructions for the church to select seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of, of wisdom, to be appointed to this duty. Effectively, what they do here is they lay out several qualifications for these men. Now, we aren't told that these men are actual deacons. I know this is often a passage used for the, the installation of the, the office of the deacon. We aren't told that any of them are actual deacons. The word for deacon is, is not actually used here to, say, to, to reference these men. Not in this passage anyways. But I, I think that based off of the qualifications that we get and the purpose that we see for the men here, that we can see the foundation of that office, right? We can see how that office really formed from these seven men. And ultimately, we do get qualifications, full list of qualifications that, that are laid out for the church to, in selecting deacons. These men show that the purpose of the deacon then is, is not to have a board of men or women who run the church or who run the pastor and make all the decisions for the church. That's not the purpose of the deacon. That's what many deacon or deacon boards have become today. But that's not what God intended for the deacon. No, a deacon is meant to be a servant, right? In the church and to the church. Yes, as we see here, they certainly have a leadership role. But deacons are meant to serve the church by assisting the elders, by seeing to the temporal affairs of the church for the purpose of freeing the elders or pastors to focus primarily on prayer and ministry of the Word. That's exactly what we see here as the, the foundation, really, of what I believe the foundation to be of this office. And, and then we continue to see the pattern of how a church is to go about making decisions here as the church ultimately selects these seven men. It wasn't the apostles that went out and selected these seven men. It was the church. The apostles led the church in the right direction by giving spiritual guidance. And then the church followed that direction, but gave the vote really on the men in these positions to the church. They, the church selected these, these men. Now, I have no doubt that had there been a legitimate reason to uh, have an issue with one of these men or multiple men that were put before them, then the apostles would have addressed it and not just taking the church's vote regardless of that issue. But apart from that, the apostles submit to the church's decision on these men. So I think, again, we see the pattern here of, of how a, a church is to, to make decisions. Then according to verse 5, we, we see that the church, they agreed with the apostles' plan, as I mentioned already. They approved it, and the congregation chose these seven men. Uh, so here we see the names of these seven men. We see Stephen. We see Philip. We see Prochorus, Nicanor, and Timon, or Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas. Now, these, these seven men, most of which we just get their names. There's not a whole lot of uh, details that we get of them. The most detail we really, really get is the first one here, Stephen. He's the first one named, and we get the most detail. We're told that he was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He's the only one of the seven here that we get a description of their character and, and of, of his faith. And I really think that's because he, he has a, and holds a special distinction in, in the history of the church, really. And, and Luke is just about to tell his story. So he's just laying the foundation for that here. 
Philip is named next, and he will also play a prominent role here in Acts and in the early church. But we don't really get a whole lot of, or we don't really get any details about him, just his name, and he's second. There's little to nothing known about the rest of the five men throughout the history of the church. Uh, there's really nothing known. There's, there's some, some assumptions about the, the last man here, but nothing known and nothing concrete, nothing really worth mentioning, to be honest. One thing to note, though, about these men is that all have Greek names here. That's at least they were given their Greek names. And because of that, most commentators believe that all of these men were, were Hellenistic Jews. We can't be certain of that because a lot of men had begun to, to take Greek names at this point, along with their Hebrew name. For instance, Paul was a Greek, the Greek name of, of Saul. So it's possible that some of these men still were, would be considered in that, that group of Hebrews. But... We do know that at least one of these men was not one of the, the group of the Hebrews. As we're told that Nicholas, that last man, he was a proselyte of Antioch. He wouldn't have been in that, that group of Hebrews. But if the assumption is correct that all of these were Hellenistic Jews who were chosen, then I, I think we can see here a spirit of humility among the church. And we see a desire within the church to right any previous wrongs and to make sure that they go above and beyond to, to be sure that there's no question about the, the, the serving of these widows, the neglect of these widows, whether it's going on. They want to leave no doubt about it. But I, I want to say this too. I think the important thing for us to take from this here in the church's decision is that these men were spirit-led, upstanding, and qualified men for these positions. That should always be the desire of the church, whether in selecting uh, and, and trying to ordain an, or an, an elder or a deacon, whichever one it might be, or anybody that might take a role within the church, especially a leadership role. They need to meet the qualifications, but those qualifications, they, they would really come down to be summed up here and being spirit-led, upstanding, qualified men for those positions. In verse 6, we see that these seven, they came before the apostles then who prayed and laid hands on them. Uh, this is not some type of giving of power. They didn't touch them and suddenly they just shot through with power that the apostles had. It wasn't passing on of some gift to them. This practice seems to be taken a little bit from the law or at least the Old Testament. When an Israelite, for instance, brought a sacrifice to the altar, he would identify himself with that sacrifice by laying his hands on the head of that sacrifice. We see a, a similar example to this uh, between Moses and Joshua in Numbers 27. There, Joshua was taking up that mantle of leadership right before Moses was going to die, and Moses laid his hands on him before the congregation as a, a show of, prov- of approval and of really passing on that mantle. The same idea is here, really, except that the apostles weren't passing on their authority. They weren't passing on the mantle uh, uh, to these, these men. They weren't passing on any apostolic power to them. The purpose of laying on the hands here was that the apostles were, were identifying themselves with these men and as being approved to serve in these positions. They were saying that these are, these are qualified, well-positioned men to serve in these positions. We identify ourselves basically with them. Then in verse 7, Luke tells us that the Word continued to increase. So this resolution that we see here of these deacons, it shows, showed to be wise, right? It showed to be fruitful, we see the Word continue to increase. They wasn't taken away. There's no preaching of the Word from the apostles and their ministry. Nothing was taken away from that. This word increase, Brian likes to talk about the Greek a good bit, but it's in the imperfect tense. So it means that it was ongoing. It was continuous. It wasn't something that just happened that day or for the next week. This is something that continued the increase. Luke notes here that 
Many of the priests even became obedient. According to Bach again, there were around 18,000 men at this point who were serving in the priesthood. So if many of the priests became obedient or, or believers, then that's a significant number, right? I mean, it could have been a significant number out of those 18,000. Uh, and I, I think that, that really sets up the stage, the next stage for the church that we begin to see played out, begin to be played out here in, in verse 8 over these next seven verses. We see that explosion of the church not just be among the common people, among the, what we would call the, the non-religious leaders. It had begun to creep, creep into the religious leaders here, the priests. And it, it not just creep in. I mean, there was a great deal of these priests that began to believe. So if the Sanhedrin had had an issue prior to this point, and a concern that what these apostles were preaching was going to take away their power, was going to cause a problem for their power or for the belief in Jesus, as it began to creep into the leadership as well and into other to priests, you can imagine that their concerns were high, exponentially higher than what they were earlier. These next seven verses here they introduce us to the next chapter, and really the next chapter in the church. Let's read beginning in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom of the Spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, we won't spend a ton of time here uh, in in these few verses, but I do want to obviously go through them and and set up, set the stage for our our next chapter, as this is the introduction really to it. I mentioned earlier how the church had faced threats so far from outside, but. It had been primarily from the Sanhedrin to to this point, right? In fact, a large reason why no one from the church had been more heavily persecuted to this point was because the majority of the people, obviously the the sovereignty of God and His protection, but but logically, as as we think through human mindset, the the majority of the people there in, in the Jewish crowds, they had supported this small, miraculous movement that had begun with the church. But that's about, to be, that's about to change in this chapter. We've seen the Sanhedrin warn and flog the apostles. Now as the, the common people, the non-religious leaders, as, as they begin to turn against the church, here in the account of Stephen, we will see that persecution escalate to the highest level. We will finally see the death penalty enacted for the first time on the church. So we see here the account of the man Stephen begin in verse 8. And this is the same Stephen that, we, that was just mentioned and ordained as a deacon there in verse 5. We see we're told that he was full of grace and power and he was able to perform great wonders and signs. This is the first example. Stephen is the first example that we have in Scripture of someone other than an apostle being full of power and having the ability to perform signs and wonders. 
So why did Stephen have these abilities if he was not an apostle? Well, obviously, he had been very faithful and had served the church in, 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 such a, in a great way. He'd served the church in, in becoming this, what I believe to be early on, deacon, the first, one of the first deacons. He was serving there the, the, the tables, overseeing that. He'd been entrusted with certain gifts, and he'd been faithful in exercising those gifts. So God saw fit to entrust him with these gifts of power and miracles. But let me be clear as we, we think about that. God is not setting a pattern here for the church to believe that great faith equals miraculous gifts. That's not what, what is, is being set here as the pattern. There have been men and women of tremendous faith throughout the history of the church who have never been able to perform one sign or one miracle. Okay? God chose to give some of those early church leaders some spiritual or some, some of these gifts for the purpose of validating the word being preached and taught. But it, still, the vast majority of the time that we see these gifts being performed, these, these acts and these wonders being performed, it is coming from the apostles. We see then that also that it was not just the apostles who were going out and ministering to the general public, right? I mean, this is not a, an apostle. Stephen's not an apostle. It, it was not just the sole job of the apostles to go out and to, to spread the gospel, to, to tell others of Christ, and to preach the truth of the Word of God. Look, anyone can go out in, in the public and, and tell the public about Jesus, right? Stephen was doing just that. He was preaching Christ as the one whom all the Old Testament foretold and foreshadowed. In doing so, he was preaching that the law and the sacrifices were no longer necessary. And that's really the bulk of the issue here with the people he was preaching to. So in verse 9, as Stephen was doing this, as he was doing these things among the people, some took exception, really, to his message. I'm sure they didn't take exception to the wonders that were being performed, but they took an exception to his message. Some from the Freedmen Synagogue were told, who included the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and some from Sicilia uh, and Asia. They were all part of this, uh, this group, this synagogue. This group consisted of Jews who were most likely former slaves and who had been freed, the freedmen and their descendants. Many of these Jews would have been Hellenistic Jews as well. Oddly enough, from what I, I've, I've read, the Hellenistic Jews were actually very pro-Jewish. They were very pro-law, and, and it makes sense. They had left their land and, and their, their birthplace a lot of times, so, and they left their things, they left a lot of their families so they could come to Jerusalem and, and follow the law and be in the locale of the temple there. And because of that, they were very zealous for the law and for the temple. And so as Stephen is sitting there preaching that Jesus, he has, there's no need for sacrifices any longer. There is no need to be strapped to the yoke of the law any longer. As he's preaching that and telling them of, of, of Christ, they have an issue with this. They have a major issue with this. And, and there's reason to think that Stephen had been doing this for some time. Again, this is probably several years past Pentecost, and, and it's very likely that Stephen had been going into the temple uh, maybe daily or at least uh, weekly and, and preaching, teaching, talking to these men about Jesus and about how, again, he has, there's no need for these sacrifices any longer. There's no need to be under the yoke of the law. It was common 
for the Jews to go into an area and set up a synagogue and worship it, and not just in, in one city, or, or not just one in one city. Oftentimes, if they would go into a city, they would set up a lot of synagogues. It kind of makes me think of the South, right? With, with churches, you, you'd have a, a ton of churches, a church on each corner here. That's kind of the way synagogues were at this time, this time just a lot of them. Uh, there were upwards of probably 450 to 500 synagogues in Jerusalem at, at this time in history. But most likely, Luke is just speaking of just this one synagogue that, that Stephen was going to and he was preaching to, that these, these certain Jews, they came to worship in. They began disputing with him, as the passage tells us. So they attempted to refute, basically, what Stephen was doing and saying. They, they, they disagreed with it. They wanted to refute it. He wasn't just performing these signs and wonder in silence, right? He was actually going in and he was preaching and he was putting words to these actions. Now we know that a man by the name of Saul was from Tarsus, and so he was a Sicilian. He was a Sicilian Jew, and so it's thought, and I think actually very likely, that Saul was in the synagogue that Stephen was going into here, and he was preaching and he was teaching, that he was part of that synagogue, or he would attend that synagogue regularly. I mean, there's no way to know for sure, but I think what we see here in this passage, and knowing where Paul was from, and ultimately Saul is, is there where Stephen is, is put to death and they lay his clothes at, at Paul's, Saul's feet, I think it's good to, or easy to assume that he was part of the synagogue. And, and as Stephen was going in and preaching and teaching, Paul was very likely one of these that was trying to refute Stephen, that was trying to teach against and, and, and tell Stephen that he was wrong. But he was not able to refute Stephen. None of them were able to refute Stephen because of the wisdom that the Spirit had given him. And we know Paul to have been a very intelligent man and a very learned man. And he was obviously very instrumental in the church and in the growth and the theology of the church. So if he was actually one of the men that was here debating Stephen, it was no small thing for Stephen to be able to just refute and to shut down Paul as he tried to respond. But whoever was trying to respond to Stephen here and refute what he was saying, they had no success because... He was full of the Spirit, and there is no match for the Holy Spirit, right? None of their wisdom was going to be able to refute the Holy Spirit. So, in verse 11, the only way they could stop Stephen was to instigate this crime against him. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and so they went after everyone, basically. Here we see the people here, not the leaders coming against Stephen. The people here in the general public were coming against the church. Again, previously... The common people had taken up arms with the church to some extent, prevented the Sanhedrin from executing or trying to execute the apostles, but now the common people have turned. They were no longer enamored with these signs and wonders or this newfound group, but now had taken offense to the message being preached. The gospel of Christ was an offense to them at this point. So they accused Stephen of of some serious crimes. They accused him of saying blasphemous things against Moses and God. Look, the Jews held Moses in the highest regard, right? It could be argued that some or many of them held Moses and God almost equally. They never would have vocalized that, but their customs and their traditions indicated that a lot of times. So they seized Stephen here, very similar to how the, the apostles had been seized earlier, and they set a false witness against them. So there's no legitimate charge here. Nothing that Stephen has done or said is wrong. They, they, they know they have to trump up these charges, They specifically accuse him of speaking words against the holy place and the temple. In verse 14, they accuse him even more specifically of threatening that Jesus would destroy the temple and the customs that Moses delivered. 
Now let me make two points about this. Destroying the temple very possibly was a crime which would have allowed the Jews to legally carry out capital punishment without Roman authority. Uh, If any of you recall from uh, the passage when we preached through John and the crucifixion of Christ, why the crucifixion was so important and the trial with Pilate was so important is because it was illegal for the Jews. Rome, the Romans had made it illegal for Jews to carry out capital punishment. But Josephus, the, the well-attested historian, he, he states this, if someone desecrated or destroyed the temple, then there was an exception to that, that law that prevented them from being able to carry out capital punishment without going to the Romans or going to the governor there to carry that out. They could do that. They could carry out the death penalty without consent of the Romans and apart from crucifixion. And I think that's why the Sanhedrin attempted to accuse Jesus in the crucifixion, in the trial before His crucifixion, of planning to destroy the temple. That was a major part of their accusations originally against Him. That didn't work. But I think that's why there's so much focus here with Stephen and and his maybe attempt to destroy the temple or talk of destruction of the temple. Notice also the statement, change. he's attempting to change the customs that Moses delivered to us. This refers to the law, but it's more than just the law here. They're, They're concerned because they're afraid that he's, or they know that he's speaking against their traditions and the practices which had been passed down throughout the years, many of which were part of the law. And actually, we're contrary to the law and we're condemned by Jesus Himself. In Matthew 15, 3, He asked the Pharisees why they broke the commandment of God for the sake of their tradition. That's exactly what, what these are, are, are complaining about, that Stephen is speaking against some of that tradition and some of those things that they thought had been passed down by Moses, but they had put on par with God's Word and with God Himself. Then finally, in verse 15, we're told that Stephen's face, as he's brought before the council here, the Sanhedrin, his face visibly was glowing for them to see. Look, Stephen is about to give a long sermon here in this next chapter, and in it, he will speak a lot about Moses and the law. I mean, he's being condemned, he's being put on trial for speaking against Moses and the law, right? Saying, basically, condemning it and what they think is, uh, you know, trying to destroy the law. And, and so Stephen's going to address that in this in this next chapter in his sermon. If you recall, when Moses went up and he received the law, and he spoke with God there on Mount Sinai, his face glowed, right? When he came down as he was face to face with God. So I do think that there is a purpose in this in the sense that there is a connection, I think, that's being made between Stephen's message that he's about to give and Moses, whom these Jews held in such high regard. It's hard to think that they wouldn't have seen the glow of Stephen's face and not immediately thought of Moses. I think the purpose of this glow then was to emphasize that the message Stephen was preaching and was about to preach to them was God's Word. It was given to him and it was in agreement with Moses' message. It wasn't in disagreement with Moses' message. As we have learned a little bit in this, the latter part of this chapter of Stephen's trial, and as we'll get into even more in his speech in a couple of weeks, there are a lot of similarities between Stephen's trial here and his ultimate death and Jesus's, more so than any other in Scripture. I won't go off into that this morning if Blake wants to do that when he's uh, preaching for us next time here in Acts. I think uh, then obviously that will be for him to, to speak about. But I think that at the very least, we can see an example of Jesus' words here being fulfilled from John chapter 15. 
There, Jesus warned, Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And Stephen is seeing almost a walk-for-walk example of that to a great extent. Two, two things before we, we close. Look, pastors, elders, we are not apostles. We, we, I hope, say that quite often from up here. We, we reiterate that. That's an important thing for us to say, especially, I think, in today's Christendom. We are not elders. There are no, I mean, we are not apostles. There are no apostles here today that are walking this earth. Apostles were given authority to formulate and teach the gospel while pastors are responsible to expound the message which the inspired apostles gave to us in the New Testament. But elders still have a ministry of the Word which we are to dedicate our lives to as long as we stand in this pulpit. We are to dedicate our lives to to prayer and to study and to, to be dedicated to God's Word to faithfully deliver it to you guys. And if the church is not putting a high priority on that, then it's really nothing more than a social club or a non-profit charity. The teaching of God's Word needs to be paramount. And there are roles which God has put us in, all of us, which will make sure that the church fulfills those roles and the Gospel is put first and foremost. We all have roles. Those roles are generally determined by our God-given gifts, right? It is important then that these roles are filled and filled properly. Only if done properly, then the church will function at its highest and will be effective in the preaching of God's Word and in the community. When these roles are not being filled properly and to the fullest extent, then it can easily lead to the decline in the standard of preaching and teaching. It can also lead to a congregation that's not exercising their God-given gifts, both of which are are wrong, and, and we should not fall into that trap. Neither are good for the health of the church or its members. And as we go th- continue to go through Acts, we will continue to see this built on more, but we, we should see here the, uh, the, the focus on God-given roles and on the Gospel itself and how the preaching of God's Word is, is paramount in God's church. Stand with me.